And then the next time I saw Frank, he's like, so tell you what, why don't you, and instead of butchering old bounty hunter pieces, why don't you go to this new place opening up called Kid Robot? I was never asked to be in any of the Dunning series. Uh, I, I had to basically fight for it, and which is a good lesson in life. It's you don't get stuff. E- most people don't get stuff easy. But I always thought George was always mad at me. It was uh, <laughs> it, it was George was always grumpy and. Hey, toy family, welcome to the Marshamp Toy Hour, where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm Gary Ham. I'm George Gaspar. And uh, no Teresa tonight. She's going to sit this week out because we're being joined by two very awesome guests that you're actually very familiar with, George. Nice. So um, I guess to properly uh, introduce them, let's just say that they've, most people are probably familiar with them. It seems like anytime there was a custom group show going on, their names were on the list. So they've done hundreds of group shows as well as curated some. Uh, Between them, they've probably done over a thousand customs, I'm guessing. They contributed designs to companies like Kid Robot, uh, Super 7, even Toy 2R. Uh, back in the day when the Kid Robot forms were around, they were both crowned king of the boards. So let's welcome Leecifer and Drill One. Welcome, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks hey. for having us. No, thanks for coming on, guys. I know it's been a while since I first approached you about the idea of coming on. I think that was two designer cons ago, but I circled back uh, with Drill One about a month ago, and he says, yeah, I'd love to come on, but i got to come on with my buddy, Lucifer. So you guys are kind of like the uh, like a package deal, huh? This is all Jay and Silent Bob. He's my hetero life mate. I'm the silent one. <laughs> so I think for our listeners, it's going to be tough for them to get familiar with your voices. So the silent one is Drill One, supposedly, right, Drills? No, it's just we get along and we have so much in common with this whole scene. And uh, we started around the same time. He started, Lisa first started a little earlier, but we've been doing the same thing for so many years. Right. Are you guys both in Sacramento still or is it San Francisco now? Yeah, I'm north of San Francisco and I've been here since 2004. And Lee, where are you? I'm actually closer to Oakland. I'm in uh, Lafayette. I don't know where that is, but I'll pretend that I do. Let's just call it Oakland. East Bay. I'm North Bay. He's East Bay. Would you guys prefer me to call you Drill One and Lucifer, or by your actual names, or how do you want to do it? Oh, you can call me Lee. That's fine. Yeah, Drill. Just call me Drill. It's easier. Okay. Why did you guys choose to use your nicknames rather than your real names on your work? I'm always kind of curious. I know there's always reasons why. I don't. I think I don't think it really matters one way or the other. But I like to ask people why they chose to use like their nickname versus using their their real name. Uh, for me, it was graffiti. Uh, in New York, I used to go right on walls and all that. And basically, you ha- kind of had to hide yourself. So when the Dundies uh, from Kid Robot Series 1 came out, it was a lot heavily graffiti-based. And that's the, basically the start to where I jumped in. And that attracted me to the whole scene. So Okay, that makes sense. You know, I actually, as long as I've known you, you've always been in San Francisco. So I actually kind of forgot that you were a New York guy, Drills. And is that the same thing for you, Lee? Did you start out doing graffiti as well? No, no. Actually, I was doing gig posters. I was, uh, I was a graphic designer and art director uh, for the phone company for almost 15 years. I had a corporate job. Before that, I had worked for a print company. I had worked for a mom-and-pop uh, design studio, and I had worked for an ad agency. I went to the University of Akron in Ohio, uh, largely because the uh, faculty from the Cleveland Institute of Art and Design would uh, moonlight there. So I could get you know commuter college price tag for 
what amounted to Ohio's version of uh, art school. Nice. Nice way to do it. Um, and the Lucifer thing came, let's see. Um, I always tell the story differently. <laughs> well, give us the real version. As a little <laughs> tiny kid, and I don't recall this, I was, uh, I was born in um, Canoga Park. My folks lived in Woodland Hills at the time before oh, moving wow. to Huntington Beach. And this would have been uh, in the 70s. Actually, I was born in 67. But uh, apparently I took a crap in a kiddie pool. I must have been three <laughs> or four. And the, and the babysitters called me Lucifer. And so some of the extended family would call me Lucifer when I did things as a little kid. And then I didn't really hear it again until like college. And I'm not quite certain the genesis at that point in time. But when I was doing gig posters, I had pissed off somebody in a band and the guy was like, he gave me a shout out from the stage and he's like, and there's my poster artist, Lucifer, over there by the bar. Go buy him a drink and maybe he'll be nicer to us or something like that. I don't recall. But after that, I started signing all my gig posters, Lucifer. The other thing is my uh, my full name is Lee Gata or Lee Glenn Gata and Gata spelled G-A-J-D-A. So I get like Bindi catalogs and, you know, <laughs> everyone assumes I'm a, an attractive Indian lady, which I'm not. No, I, I've seen you. You are not on a touch. I are. try. I mean, you know, I you know, I shave my legs. <laughs> Guys, I don't. We've been crossing uh, paths at conventions for I don't know how many years now, but I don't think we've ever actually like sat and had like a longer conversation. Usually, it's the cordial hello, nice to see you again. You know, the head nod and the wave as we pass in the aisle. So this is nice. We have talked a little bit when you were with in the booth with Scott at Comic Con and Julie West. Yes. The amazing, the amazing Miss West. Yeah, that, that's just usually where you would stop by drills and just kind of sell things out of your backpack and use our chairs to sign stuff for other people. It was more <laughs> resting my feet. That's what it was. <laughs> actually, actually, he's not the only one. I'm guilty as well. I'll, I'll, I'll accept responsibility for doing that. You guys had an awesome booth, dude. That corner booth was amazing. It was nice, yeah. I mean... Well, we'll get to, you know, talking about San Diego Comic-Con soon, because you guys are part of the, the Dragatomi family, the, the original toy family. We say toy family now, but that all started back with Dragatomi back in the day, and you guys were a large part of their store, their their booth at San Diego Comic-Con, but we'll get that to in a bit. So you guys were saying that you guys started doing customs around the same time? What year was that? Lee might have started first, uh, but I started in 2004. December 2005 was my first custom I put on the Kid Robot forums. Wow. And it sold. And then I, in January, I started doing a run of 30 custom dunnies. And it all happened because my dog chewed off a ear on the Tristan Eaton weightlifter dunny. <laughs> okay. So it, I, it came by accident and I got into it and they all sold out really quick. And I was hooked since... So, Drill, for those not familiar, how would you describe your uh, personal customization style? DK. Uh, so I try to keep experimenting with new styles, and I started adding graffiti into work. I started trying different paint techniques, and but it all comes down to rust and decay and history. And that's I love history. I used to take a lot of photos of abandoned insane asylums in New York. So inspiration came from there, and I also enjoy old military stuff, so it combined. And rivets. Don't forget the rivets. Holy shit. The first time I held one of Alex's customs, I was blown away at all the rivets. Because I'd, I'd made the mistake of thinking that was a good idea myself a couple times. Dear God, that takes forever. <laughs> I can only imagine. But yeah, I, it looks like a lot of work. But it looks fantastic, Drills. And so what about, what about you, Lee? How did you get started? 
in regards to what doing rust stuff. Well, when did you actually start customizing? Was it around two, oh, the late 2005 uh, as well? Yeah, maybe and a was, little. Was it the Dunny that. that got you started? Was it that the gateway yeah. to your customs? Um, I actually, uh, I was actually trying. Frank Kozik was publishing a book called Pandemeat from with Last Gasp. And the concept behind Pandemeat was it was going to be like an old school black book, <laughs> not a uh, not a black book that you sketched in, but uh, as an ad agency compendium type thing as a resource for contact. Um, prior to you know the advent of the internet and cell phones, if you wanted to get in touch with somebody, you needed their physical address and phone number. And so black books, when I was in college, black books were a, a big deal, and it usually had you know, a sample of the artist's work and then their contact information. So Pandemeet was going to be kind of a modern interpretation of that with uh, for gig poster artists. And so I took a, a portfolio of work, went to see Frank, and uh, and I was he was super gracious, really, really awesome, really fun to talk to. But I, uh, he invited me over to his apartment in San Francisco, and I I was so completely distracted by what he had in the cases. And this is before, I think there was a kid robot in New York, but this was before the one in San Francisco was actually open. Uh, and Frank had lots of like bounty hunter and secret base and Michael Lau old, old school vinyl, um, mm -hmm. as well. I don't, he might've had some Safubi type stuff as well, you know, like maybe some bull marks and stuff, but I, I definitely remember the secret base and the, um, and, and that stuff. And, uh, I, <laughs> after the first meeting, I went home and paid way too much on eBay for, expensive vinyl and just destroyed that stuff had a blast doing it and then the next time i saw frank he's like so tell you what why don't you and instead of butchering old bounty hunter pieces why don't you go to this new place opening up called kid robot and they're gonna have much more inexpensive vinyl that you could just completely destroy and i think i killed four or five cases of series one dunnies just massacred them yeah, yeah, Lucifer was known as the Toy Destroyer. Toy Ruiner. Oh, Toy Ruiner. That was it. <laughs> That's two very different things, though. Like, Toy Destroyer could be a good thing, but Toy Ruiner, I don't know. Do you like that title? Sure. I Yeah, I don't I don't care. It was – you know what, I, Gary? I, I think the, the real impetus, and I don't know that I ever speak to this, is that I took it for granted that we had so much of it in the Bay Area. I mean, we had – you know, arguably the genesis for Kid Robot was here. Yep. Strange Co. was here. Uh, Super Seven was here. Rocket World. Yep, Rocket World. What was uh, what was the was it Biscop or Baseman that had a shop here? There was just a ton. There was so much of it. And when my wife and I were courting, we would go to like uh, gallery shows because I was still showing two D work as much as I could. And much, much to Alex's influence as well, we were seeing just amazing graffiti artists that were also showing in, in some of these galleries. So you'd see a Mars One piece hanging on the wall, and then you'd walk outside of White Walls or something down the street, and there'd be one, you know, in an alleyway. And the price points on some of that stuff, we'd buy art and support local artists when we could, but it was so much cheaper when the toys started to show up, when, when Strange Co. first started making toys – you know, I mean, they covered almost all of the local graph royalty. And it was, uh, besides Frank's influence, it was the accessibility of having three-dimensional forms rendered by some of my favorite local artists. 
Yeah, you really were spoiled where you lived. I mean, the Bay Area, L.A., and New York City is kind of where, you know, everything was really hot and going on in designer toys. And for those that didn't live in those cities, you know, for a lot of us, we'd have to go to the Kid Robot Forums. And you guys mentioned that kind of played an integral early start into your you know, toy careers as well. And But yes. the forums are no longer around. Do you guys miss the Kid Robot Forums? It used to be basically Instagram, but it was a lot better. It was like we had it was just a huge group of people and we were all helping each other for the most part and it, it, i do miss it but it, <laughs> it went downhill so fast and people try to make other forums and there was all these secret forums out there and none of it forums basically just died out everywhere so yeah social media came along kind of killed the forum format but when you were you know those not familiar the kid robot forums is where a lot of us can go to just have general toy discussion kid robot discussions a lot of the artists were there a dunny section and you guys would post your customs and what section was the, the dunny section you guys would post show off i think it was a show off section okay yeah i didn't really go in the show off section much it was mainly the general discussion is pretty much where i say most of the time so those not familiar in the show off section customizers can go and share their customs and stuff like that and what kid robot ended up forming was uh, a king of the boards title where once a month they would pick someone in that group uh, to then do like an interview and kind of a showcase on the kid robot blog of all their stuff. And you guys were both a part of that. Is that, is that how it went down? I think that's what it, I don't remember exactly how they picked it, but yeah, I honestly thought I just got mine cause Alex got to do it. So you guys are a package deal. Pretty much so. Yeah. Alex, we were... I think Alex did that first and you know, within well, a month or two I got to do it as well. But we weren't really friends. I met him at Comic-Con. That's where he was at Strange Kiss booth. And uh, I introduced myself, and that's where we met. But we still didn't start hanging out maybe five years after that. Uh, we were friends before Dragatomi, though. Yes, it was just, yeah, right before Dragatomi. You, you were still working in Berkeley, dude. I think you were working for a sign shop or something like that. We should yes. probably just we should probably describe what Dragatomi is because I don't know if every I don't know if everyone knows. So Dragatomi was a brick and mortar store located in Sacramento, guys. Yes, Sacramento, yeah. J Street. Okay, and it was ran by a married couple, uh, Joanne and Ray, and it was a pivotal store for. The, I mean, it was one of the you know, the go to stores. A lot of great shows were held there, and but sadly, it closed. Oh my gosh, is it? I think around 2014. I want to say. Yeah, it's got going so fast, life. So it's yeah, wow. It's I can't a, believe it's been five it's years. Blur. Did yeah. you ever see it, Gary? No, I never had the pleasure. I participated in a few events that they held, but never got to see it in person. George came up a couple times, didn't you, George? I'm, I know you came up once at least because we hung out. Yeah, I, a couple of times I went with uh, when Scott had a show there. I would always try and go up with him. Yeah, they were they were great. That was a cool store. It was like a the, the little area of the street was really cool. Like a lot of foot traffic, everybody kind of hanging out. Yeah, they had art walk. And before there was a shooting on somewhere around there, they had art walk, and there'd be crowds of people just mobbing into the store. And people off the street that don't know what designer toys are or customs or anything would buy pieces. It was awesome. And the internet was still, you know, it was people, we were selling mostly on the internet, but Joanne was the key of that operation. She was a bomb, man. She did something that even hardcore galleries don't always do, which was she really made it her priority to sell your artwork. And I think the fact that, that they sold, that part of the store was retail, obviously it was a toy store, didn't hamper their ability to, to promote their artists. 
Sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to. I was oh, no, I, I, a little I, I over like enthusiastic this. about Joanne and Ray. They, no, they it's were cool. Just amazing. Back. She would, uh, I, I had a solo, sh- my first solo show was there in 2011, I think. And she basically, weeks after the show opened, she was like calling me all the time. She's like, I got someone in Italy that wants to buy the big piece. I had a shark for sale that was 3500 And Damn. she worked it out. So they would, uh, she would get, got a courier that would take it there, and it was awesome. It was she did so much back work for that gallery that it succeeded in that way. Yeah, they were great people. I, I really miss them having them around. It's just um, their presence in their store, like their store is a staple in the scene, especially at San Diego Comic Con. Their booth was like the place to go for customs at San Diego Comic-Con. Like they supported uh, up-and-coming artists, established artists, you know, pretty much everyone. They were great. And the yes. one year that they were not at San Diego Comic-Con, I, that's when I started noticing the change, the decline of what San Diego Comic-Con meant for our, our toy scene. It was no longer their premier event. Every year after they had left, something else, it just never felt the same. Other vendors just kept leaving. Hey, Gary, I was dying to ask both you and George's question. Alex and I talk about this all the time. Did you feel that it was because of everyone migrating towards Decon, or do you feel that San Diego Comic-Con sort of pushed out the toy scene? Because we both have kind of strong opinions about it. I was just curious to hear what you and George thought about that. I think it's a combination of things. I think definitely DesignerCon played a role. And that convention is so enticing and so appealing for both exhibitors and collectors alike. I mean, the, the price point, that there's just night and day the, uh, the expense cost between the two conventions. And uh, once DesignerCon became a destination location, and by that I mean once all the out-of-staters started flying in for that convention, it just became the place to vend at and the place to be for our community. And that, yeah, I think that put the nail in the coffin for San Diego because San Diego was just so expensive to deal so very expensive three thousand dollars plus for a booth it's a five-day event so you had to get six nights hotel stay which was three four hundred dollars a night in some cases and in every year it was more and more of a hassle to find a hotel room and just to get passes to get in it was like a lottery to get passes and once most collectors couldn't even get in anymore forget about it game over yeah i think i kind of agree and i think even but i think even without designer con even if that wasn't there Comic-Con has done so much to hinder small companies being there. So there's really no, there's no way for a small company to be there. So unless you're big enough, unless you're like kid robot size or bigger, there's really no way to be there. Like there's no reason to be there. The people who are attending are not looking for you. They're looking for, you know, Mattel. They're looking for Hasbro. They're looking for AMC or, you know, Miramax or company, you know, big movie companies, you know, they don't want, nobody wants the little guys thing. Like we don't have, we don't have product there thereafter. So go on. No, I, I went to Comic-Con when it was one step up from card tables, Uh, you know, (laughs) single, no, no double decker booths, nothing like that. All very, I mean, it looked pretty much like decon. God, when was that? It was in the nineties. And I can tell you almost to the year, if I could recall what year this movie came out. So a movie called The Crow. I don't know if you guys remember that. Oh, yeah. So so The Crow came out. And the following year, dude, I had never seen so many fucking lawyers at Comic-Con. Guys in suits and ties with suitcases wandering around looking to sign properties. 
And I don't know, is, is it James Obar? I can't recall who wrote The Crow. I, I never spoke to him personally, but I've always wanted to ask him that question, you know, if he saw that change. Because then the following year, you saw the double-deckered boost. And the year after that, you had huge Marvel presence, DC presence. But, you know, and there there's some odd, interesting little movies. Um, but you could l- so see the profound impact on Comic-Con. You know oh, yeah. what I mean? It was it was just night and day. And then the other big thing that happened, and I'm not I, I don't I guess I'm not enough of a gamer to understand what the genesis of this was, but I always felt that the toy scene got bumped by the great big expensive video game booths. You know, they yeah. where where we used to be located, they started throwing in all those giant expensive booths and I I knew even then Joanne and Ray and I would talk about Alex too. You know, we were concerned that the writing was on the wall because the, you know, the booths topped twenty five hundred dollars at that point in time, on their way to three grand, and they moved us into like you know the corners or, I mean, you guys were kind of safe. I, Scott had a lock on that corner booth. Well, we actually got that corner booth from High Fructose because they decided not to exhibit anymore. Oh no way! Yeah, so I was in charge of booking the booth from like two thousand four until I left in two thousand fifteen. And uh, one year when they decided to move the designer toy scene to that back corner, our booth didn't get moved over for some reason. And we were kind of still in the same area, which ended up being like an anime-type area. So Mm -hmm. I was calling San Diego Comic-Con and saying, like, hey, we need to be moved. And I was put on a wait list in case someone ended up canceling. And luckily, High Fructose ended up canceling. And then we slid into that corner spot for several years. And then my last convention was 2015. And then Scott retained the booth after that, I think. Uh, but to, to George's point, it's like the convention got so expensive that it was really hard for the little person to exhibit there anymore. It's just so hard to recover your costs. And even if you look at, at it from a marketing standpoint, it's really hard to be there as well. I mean, if, only if you have like something like a new IP that you're really wanting to get in front of people's eyes would doing that kind of event really be worthwhile. But Comic-Con... I would sell stuff to people that I don't sell to now. And it was people that never bought a designer toy. I have a famous photographer uh, bought a 20-inch dunny of mine there. And it's like I would meet people that knew nothing that I've done before and just fell in love with my work, which was designer con, you don't get that. Right, and that was what was great about the San Diego Comic Con. There were so many people there that, yes, yeah, someone's definitely going to discover you for the first time or learn about designer toys for the first time and make a purchase. That definitely happened, and I think designer con's getting there. It's not solely focused on just the collectors anymore. That I think, well, it still is, but it, I think it's getting to a point where San Diego was many, many years ago. But um, yeah, but I think San Diego got to a point where even spending five, six thousand dollars to get those five to ten new, you know, eyeballs on your stuff, was that worthwhile anymore? No, yeah. And many people that exhibited there were kind of already semi-established. I mean, what I'm saying is a lot of the stuff that they were selling at the convention, they probably could have sold the majority of the stuff online anyways, but they're doing the convention for marketing and to get new eyeballs on their stuff and probably more importantly getting that face-to-face time with their their collectors and the fan base. But it got to a point where a lot of the collectors couldn't even get in anymore or weren't going. So then you're trying to only sell to the people who aren't there for your stuff, and that's when it became more difficult to get sales. And it's true because a lot of people that were uh, buying my stuff kind of got 
it, it got harder for them to get tickets to get in. So yes, it, it sales went down at the end, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to say one thing that uh, Comic Con was a good start, and what got me to go to Comic Con uh, on Kid Robot message boards, I had a collector who would buy a lot of my stuff, and we would talk a lot, and it was Jeru. Before he started doing art, he was he would buy my stuff. Oh, and, yes, yeah. And I went to Comic-Con with him the first time, and I don't remember what year, maybe 2007 or 2008. We shared a room, and I had work at IWG. They put my stuff up. And then I, I don't know if... I met George from VTN and Eileen, and the next year, you guys gave me passes. I just wanted to thank you, George uh, and Eileen, and uh, you guys helped me get in, and it helped my career go forward. And that's it. Since we're, kiss- okay. since we're kissing George's ass, I got to extend the same thing. Yeah, man. Dude, you guys helped us a lot. Thank you very much, George. Is he there? <laughs> I don't have no idea. Is he there? <laughs> oh, my God. We're, we're kissing George, and he's not there to hear it. No, I'm here. I'm sorry. Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> Screw it. You. Screw it. You know what, Gary? Just edit all that down. <laughs> No, that's too good to cut it out. I, oh, I'm such an asshole. So good. <laughs> we were was, just giving you heartfelt props for, you know, helping us out when we were starting. But I always thought George was always mad at me. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, George was always grumpy. And, and then the one time in San Francisco, we sat uh, and hung out, had a beer. It changed everything. And I understood George. See? See? <laughs> I used to think the same thing, though. I used to think George is grumpy, and then I realized it's just it's just the convention atmosphere. You're stuck in there for five, six days straight, oh, long God. days, terrible lighting. Yeah, you're oh. gonna catch someone in a bad mood every once in a while. I, you know, I consider myself a pretty cheery, upbeat person most of the time, and that plays got to me. So yeah, I get it. Hey, Gary, do you do a lot of other conventions? Uh, not exhibiting. I attend Designer Con and Five Points still, but I stopped. I was exhibiting at San Diego Comic Con from 2003 to 2015. Exhibited several years at uh, Designer Con, but no, I just, I eventually just got tired of exhibiting. I would get tired too, Scott. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, he drained you. I was, I was waiting to throw something at Scott. That's so funny. You win. Yeah, he doesn't listen. He's not going to hear you knocking him. Yeah, he'll never hear it. Just like I didn't hear anything. <laughs> Scott's great, and I just have to mess with him. And I'm drinking bullet bourbon just in honor of Scott when he was on. Oh, God, that's hysterical. I uh, I did a certain series of years. I can't recall if it was three or four years where I worked with uh, Super 7. And, uh, God, nothing but love for you know Brian Flynn and Joshua Herbelsheimer. But dear God, man, on your on your feet in that booth after you know even a few days, I was just I was just dead. I was just hating it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, no, uh, it, it takes its toll. Uh, Joanne and Ray, it was a little different because they had so many of us. Uh, we really didn't need to be there that often outside of our signings. You know, we'd have a signing, we'd hang out and support. You know, try and and sell stuff. But then the rest of the time, they kind of wanted us out of there because there were so many people and they wanted to do their thing. And, and again, I hope to God that Joanne and Ray hear this. They, they really, really knew how to promote their artists and put their artists first. And 
so many great sales were realized because, you know, they were on top of their game. And I think, and I don't want to sound weird or bitter about this. There's so many places that I've sent work to that were brick and mortar shops that were selling whatever, you know, whether it be skate decks or posters or toys, but, uh, that's not the same as a gallery, you know, at a gallery, their job is to sell your art. And consequently, if they take 50%, that's to cover their overhead. But if you're, if your primary business is any other form of retail, you know, I'd have a real struggle with paying 50% of my take if you're not on top of it. And Joanne and Ray were just so gracious. I mean, they'd even put Alex and I up. We almost always wound up having a party at their house you know, in conjunction with one of us having a show or being part of a group show or something. I was going to mention that as well. What's that, George? I was going to mention that as well. Like when Scott and I went up for Scott's show, they opened their house to us. Like we stayed in their, in their house. Yeah. They, I mean, they put up with all of us. I mean, we'd descend on that place. They would safely tuck their kids away with another family member. And then, you know, we would all show up. Yeah. Oh, and she'd cook for us, too, after two, oh, all day yeah. working the show. And it's just, I mean, you know, just above and beyond. I, I think I think we were spoiled. I mean, you know, Alex and I talk pretty much every day. And, and I, I would say easily at least once or twice a week or a month, one of us will hear something or have some kind of weird experience with a gallery or some other operation. And we don't even bitch about that because it's common. We lament the fact that Joanne and Ray aren't around anymore, and we, you know, we <laughs> we talk wistfully about how awesome they were and how great that time was. And it was, and the other thing too was, I don't have any great love for Sacramento. It's kind of a pain in the ass for me to get up there, and it's freaking Sacramento. But it was it was fabulous to go up there and hang out with those guys. Yeah, that's how we met Skinner too. Skinner used to live not too far from Dragatomi. That's and right. I always come and hang out that. with us. I forgot about Skinner being up there. Wow, you guys make it sound like amazing. I mean, I knew that the toy family, the Dragon Tommy toy family was tight and had a lot of fun, but I didn't realize there was that much stuff going on. That sounds like it was good times. But um, I want to get back to talking to you guys about your customs and how then you jumped to production. So, Drills, when you got the uh, King of the Boards on the Kid Robot forums, is that how you landed your first Dunny series? No. Uh, basically, I was never asked to be in any of the Dunny series. Oh. Uh, I, I had to basically fight for it and which is a good lesson in life it's you don't get stuff most people don't get stuff easy and so i did a custom series and i sent them a photo and a year later out of nowhere i get an email saying we want you to be in it oh that's awesome and you know who sent them your email though right was it you lee it was me i was i sent it i sent the photo though but, yeah, yeah. I was asked to be in the series, and there was no way in hell I was working on the Hanu and also working for Super 7 and trying to do some other 2D art projects. And I, there was just no way in hell I could do it. So, And I, I think Alex and I were hanging out. We weren't tight, but you know, he was the only local guy that I thought really deserved an opportunity. So then, so, But before then, I used to actually work for Kid Robot. I took photos for their uh, SF store in 2006, I think. Uh, yeah, 2006, I took all their show photos. That's how I met Patrick Ma from IWG. I met uh, Tara McPherson, Kozik. Uh, I, I took photos of all their Dunny releases and toy releases at That Kid Robot for two years. I didn't know that. And uh, I'm 
they took down all the photos, but I have all the photos I need to get up one day. I got old kid robot photos where there's the old ugly dolls in a case. It's like the first ones that ever came out, the big ones. Oh, yeah, you got to post, post that to your feed or start a Flickr page. Flickr's – I have so much <laughs> stuff on my Flickr. If you could link it at the end uh, you know, on that page, but it has a lot of old stuff. It goes back to 2002, I think. So of my so, artwork and stuff. So, dude, I'm not certain. I I think I bought a dunny from you. I'm almost positive because Alex had this great deal going where they were what paying you in dunnies. Oh yeah. So uh, tell them that story because I thought that was awesome. So I basically my boss was the Baroness. So basically, I was supposed to get paid fifty dollars per photo shoot, and. Instead, Baroness would give me a case of dunnies every time I did that. So I would sell off the expensive pieces because I didn't want to paint them. I didn't want to be like Lee. Lucifer painted like the first Rose Vampires, like 20 of them. So, uh, But I would uh, – <laughs> people would scratch the feet of Lucifer's customs to see what he painted. It's, the Japanese toy world was brutal back then. Uh, but uh, so I would get the cases and I would paint all the common ones and – and it was awesome. It's I would make triple the money that I would, you know, from 50, 50 bucks, I would make probably 500 bucks. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I just I thought it was brilliant because there's no way in hell a little brick and mortar could afford to pay Alex properly for taking photos. You know, he was there religiously. Turning the product around and making more money on top of it just seemed like uh, just a, a brilliant solution to me. But yeah, that's how I met Patrick Ma, and I ended up throwing uh, 2008. I threw uh, the IWG show, custom show at Rocket World. I invited a hundred people. George was in it, and I got I think 70 customs back. That's a pretty good return on the hundred, actually. It was uh, all like I just got would go to Strange Co and just pick up boxes of boxes of custom like pieces, blanks, and. And some of them were prototypes that I had to mark up so people wouldn't keep it. it was just... <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that conversation. Actually, you know what, dude? I think that was one of the first times you and I got to hang out uh, because you picked me up off of BART and we went and spent the day uh, unpacking everything and you were taking photos and then set up the show. That was a hell of a show, actually. Wait, George, you actually came up for that show, too. Yeah, that was, that was really dumb. We drove up, <laughs> went to the show, and then drove home. I thought you stayed with a brother. Don't you have a brother? I do, but we didn't stay with him that time. I did, oh, we okay. drove up and drove home the same night. That was mm. that was really dumb. <laughs> that was a lot of driving, uh, but that was a great show. That was, I, you know, what's weird is like I had no idea how I got involved in that show. So that was cool that you just told it's me that because was, we knew each, we knew each other from the Gwyns. Yeah, because you were Gwyn show, weren't you? Yes, and I got involved on the Kid Robot boards, and I would talk to you there, and then. Yeah, I made the pinata for VTN, yeah. which was brashed by the hammer. Smashed with a toy break hammer and full of little custom mini Gwyns inside and candy and a whole bunch of stuff. It was also the show where I first got on stage and added to a canvas, which was nerve-wracking, but it was awesome. It's weird to think you were so new back then and I didn't even know. Yeah, that's where I also met Dragatomi. Uh, I was at Spanky Stokes' booth and Dragatomi came up to Spanky Stokes and introduced them. And they gave Spanky a plush dragon. And ever since then, it's like, I can't remember how we connected then, but I think Spanky stayed close to them. And Dude, I think, together. 
I think you just told the genesis of the Toy Fam. I think so, and, and I think so, Alex. But so it was at VTN the whole the whole meeting. The VTN started at the beginning. Yeah. Oh. Now we should also say because we're saying a lot of letters and number or a lot of letters and names that people <laughs> might not know. Like I don't know if anyone listening probably even knows what IWG is. Okay. Uh, okay, Insurgents Wilderness Grupo. I think that's it. And Pat, it's from Patrick Ma, who was a very environmental. He cared about animals. He donated money from them. And it was his side project to what he did, which was a tag, which was kind of a tactical gear. Yep. Yeah, and each animal had, like, a, a weapon with it, right? Because it was, like, fighting against, like... Humans. Like, the elephant would be fighting against poaching and that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was a cool line. If anyone doesn't isn't familiar with that, they should look it up. Teresa, as you're listening to this, you should go look that up. Oh, and Teresa, uh, you probably <laughs> haven't seen The Crow either, so you should watch that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would bet my entire collection that she's never seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine. Let's take a brief moment to mention some of our sponsors. So for all your desire toy needs, wants, and desires, we have three amazing stores for you. First up is 3DRetro.com. 3D Retro is a producer of amazing art toys, but along with that, they have a brick-and-mortar location in Southern California. They host lots of great events. The store is amazingly beautiful, so if you're in the area, be sure to visit 3DRetro.com and say hello to their team there. Our next sponsor is StrangeCatToys.com. Strange Cat Toys is awesome. They've been supporting us since the beginning. Corey is an amazing guy. So if you go to StrangeCatToys.com and you're a listener to the show, load up that cart and use our promo code MARSHAM at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your entire order. And lastly for the stores is My Plastic Heart. My Plastic Heart is located in New York City. If you're in the area, you definitely want to check out their quaint little store. Vin is awesome. The store mascot is awesome. His name is Kiba the dog. But if you can't make it to New York City, fear not. You can visit MyPlasticHeart.com, load up that cart. And as a listener of the show, if you live in the States and spend $75 or more, use our promo code TOYFAM at checkout and you'll receive free shipping on that order. Otherwise, to stay on top of all the latest and greatest in toy news, be sure to like and follow SpankyStokes.com and TheToyChronicle.com. And be sure to download the Toy Chronicle app at any one of your favorite app stores. So this week, DesignerCon sent out the registration forms for booths for next year's event. Are you guys registered and paid up for next year? We were in another booth last year. Uh, We were with Task. Uh, We are not toys. Okay. Dan. I think we we can use his name, but Task. Task 1, Task 1-er. I had a phone conversation with Task the other day. To answer your question, we're a little bit in limbo. We were looking to expand. Uh, We wanted to a couple of booths side by side. We, I don't know if you saw it or not. We did sort of a glass fishbowl build out of Detoss this yep, year. I saw it look great. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's got its upsides. It's got its downsides. If everyone, if the powers that be decide they want to do that again next year, Alex and I are not hauling those fucking Detoss around. Those are heavy things. No, we had to drive uh, them from, uh, where was it? Uh, Pasadena almost. Oh God. Yeah. And then, uh, and then at the end we decided to break them all down, which that, that took us back to drag it. We used to do that with Joanna Ray, break down all the details. 
Oh after God, work. I did that for so many years. I, I have two still sitting in my garage from because uh, Julie would fly in for San Diego Comic Con, so I would store hers as well. So every year I would bring two of them, yeah. set them up, break them down, load them up, and just repeat the next year. Yeah, that's detox are heavy as hell, dude. Those things. I mean, and I understand the fascination. What what you know? Other tiny mobile you know, vertical glass case are you going to get that's affordable for toys? But right. holy shit, those things are possessed. They're just waiting to, <laughs> you know. I've had them shatter. I've seen... Uh, I was going to say, I see them every year shatter at, at a decon. Uh, this year, this past year, was... Uh, it shattered no, during the event, though? It shattered during setup. And then oh. the year before, I think one shattered on Valley Dweller. Yes, yes. That was Lisa Percival. J- Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy still... Jeremy, if you're listening, buddy... It wasn't wasn't my mojo. It, I had nothing to do at with it. it. <laughs> but yeah, I literally walked by and said hello, and the thing exploded on him. Yeah, I've seen him happen like that. It's crazy. But yeah, as to back to decon, I definitely, if I can't get in that booth, get our own booth. I want to be involved somehow because preview night, I sold seventy five percent of my stuff. So it was, I it was just put a grin on my face. That's why I was smiling. It was time. awesome. It was awesome, dude. And people actually came and hunted you down, you know, looking for your work specifically. No, I think nothing's more flattering than being approached by somebody that doesn't speak English. And they're, you know, because they've, they've done their research, they made a decision, they liked your art, and obviously traveled from whatever country to, you know, come spend, come, come hand you their money and take a piece of your artwork home. And you had three or four transactions that you pantomimed. And it was it was amazing, dude. All right, well, I'm gonna I wanna ask a question then. You guys have each done customs of a lot of different figures, and then you've each had your own figure made. And Drill, have you as a dunny? I know, but has there been anything of like of your own original as well, or just the dunny? Uh, well, I've had keys to uh, one key. Uh, so like outside of a platform. Nothing yet, but I'm. Hopefully, maybe next year or this later this year. So, what do you guys like? And I know, Lisa, where you've done Pickle Baby. Um, so you've had your own, you know, your own platform, and you've got the the Hanu and a couple other like the different versions of that. What do you guys like customizing on more? Your own things or other people's like random shapes? So I actually have made a lot of resin stuff of my own. I enjoy having a box of resin pieces that I could paint any way I want. And I could call my own. And so I do prefer my own stuff. Dude, George, you're the you're the person that promoted resin to to both of us. I mean, certainly myself, man. You were you were captain, you know, make your own DIY figures. Go learn to sculpt, go learn to cast. I think you were certainly the impetus for me to get off my ass. I wanted to uh, – there was uh, a Super 7 show that was resin. Um, I curated four or five shows for Super 7, and I, I don't know that – if I did curate the resin show, it wasn't my idea. But uh, the first time I was on your couch was right after that. I had a little standing Gamera ripoff that I was doing, a little gammy. I got two of those. Yeah, cool. But I mean, I, I was so sheepish to show it to you because I had already seen your sculpt, your sculpting. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to show this to George. And my wife is like, you already committed to this. You got to take one down and show it to him. 
you were so kind and gracious. You didn't you didn't cut me up for uh, my lack of sculpting chops. You hit it all with paint. I did. I did. <laughs> I did hide it with paint. Well, then you handed me uh, you handed me Spanky's little stroll, and uh, I didn't realize it was the wax original. I thought it was a cast. And you're like, oh no, no, that's the original. And I just remember freezing in your kitchen, going, "I'm go- I'm gonna drop this. I know I'm gonna drop this wax piece and." It'll be the end of the friendship. <laughs> now, Lee, talking about originals, so you worked with Super 7 on the Hono of the Flame. How did you – how did that happen? Were you working for Brian Flynn of Super 7? Were you working at the Super 7 stores? Or how did – like I know they don't work with that many artists on original design. So how did the Hono come about? My, uh, my tenure at Super 7 was very brief. I worked at the brick and mortar. There was five or six of us in a back office. Uh, one of my friends had worked there. Little little bit of nepotism, and I got to meet Brian and Josh. And it was so funny because, like, Josh, every, everyone's always amazed at, at Josh's skill and talent. But that dude really, really paid his dues. He started on a register. He was out front dealing with the customers. Cleaning and toilets, too. Yeah, there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't anything like the most obscure piece of Japanese safubi, the craziest, most rare bullmark figure. Josh knew all this shit off the top of his head, so you know I, I felt I felt in great nerddom company being there. In regards to the figure, Brian's influences were. You know, Japanese and Safubi and skateboarding and straight edge music. No offense, Brian. Horrible straight edge music. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to listen. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> yeah, you guys got to stop assuming people are actually listening. <laughs> but I, I didn't ever foresee him trying to make the transition between what's considered traditional Safubi and Western vinyl. And that was the Munster family line. You know, and it was it was amazing. You had all kinds of great Western artists that got an opportunity to make a Sufubi toy. And I think I was I was probably like the very last guy, I think. I don't think they made any more after me. But, uh, you know, Josh's Rose Vampire, uh, Lemaire had a piece. uh, Paul Kaiju had a piece. Uh, You know, just there was just a ton of these sort of like Western inspired Sufubi pieces. And that was, that's, you know, the, the Hanu was part of that Munster family line, I guess. I don't know. I'm sorry, Gary, did I answer the question remotely? No, it does. I had no, I had no idea that you worked there. And it sounds like good advice for anyone who wants to break into this toy scene. Just go to a store and offer to clean their toilets, and that might get you rolling. Well, now, I, I also danced naked outside on the, uh, you know, on the sidewalk. That so. probably doesn't help as much as cleaning the toilets, though. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> On Hate Street, it, it does a lot. <laughs> uh, Brian had a great crew. He had a great, great group of folks. For people that don't know, I mean, I think I can say this, but you know, Brian's day job is hybrid design, and they yep. work with companies like Nike and you know all these amazing Fortune 500, these massive corporations that only want the creme de la creme of graphic design and so that's what brian and dora do in their day job and brian's a straight edge skateboarding kid from texas that collected toys he doesn't have any vices you know so his only 
his only way to blow off steam until he had kids was Super 7. And it was really interesting meeting the guy because uh, they had had a shop in Japantown. Actually, they had a couple shops in Japantown and San Francisco. And I had seen the magazine and I got to go in there and, and check the place out. And, dude, it was – I mean it was like – there were cause pieces on the shelf. You know, there were bounty hunter pieces on the shelf. There were old, you know, tin toys. It was like, it was all the sort of genesis of what would influence Western vinyl. Right. You know, it was amazing to see all this shit. And had I known that that stuff was going to become so rarefied once upon a time, because you pick it up, look at the price and you put it back down, you know, but it, I mean, Brian did so much to, to influence myself personally and for what I think became, you know, Western vinyl. Did Brian specifically invite you to be a part of the Monster Family series? No, no. A uh, previous employee, uh, an employee who shall remain unnamed. But yeah, it was it was through talk, talking with Brian that he knew how badly I wanted to do, produce something with Super 7. And he knew I had passed up other opportunities with other companies because I was just so focused on doing something for Super 7. Okay. And it was, and that piece came. Uh, God, I was working freelance jobs somewhere else when that piece finally came around. So, it, <laughs> the other thing I should mention about Brian too is when I met him, uh, he had already produced some really interesting stuff under the Super Seven moniker for the store. But I was asking him, you know, what what do you want to do? He had produced uh, a large scale version of the Kitty Fire, which is. Uh, God, it almost looks like a plant. It's kind of similar to the Hanu, really. I hated it. <laughs> Who said that? Me. Oh, I yeah. It. Remember how huge that thing was? It was dangerous. You can put an eye out with that thing. I hated uh, all Japanese vinyl until Monster Family came out. Is that true? Really? I didn't know that. And when I picked up one of those pieces and I saw that clear vinyl, hot pink and all that, and clear blue and sparkles, and I'm hooked. But do you remember the when Brian released the Visigos or when he released the Dokawashis or yeah. I wasn't a fan. Wow, cuz that first show I I put you in, I think I was trying to send you that shit. I don't recall what you wound up painting cuz I know uh, you didn't you didn't want to paint I did a Mecha Godzilla. Uh, but didn't you do one of the house figures? Didn't you do like a Mummy Boy or something too? And a Mummy Boy, but I liked Mummy Boys. Mummy yeah. Boys to me were like kind of a good in-between, too. What's your all-time favorite platform, guys, to work on? Oh, I could rattle off a ton of them. I mean, obviously, you know, Super 7's always treat me very well, so uh, I like the Dokuwashi, and since we know Brian's not going to listen to this, do the Dokuwashi <laughs> is, is by far the worst. Uh, it's three, it looks like a Christmas tree with a donut on its head, right? <laughs> Yeah. And it's got two little like spiky arms on the side yep. and the joints the joints all intersect. They all crash together. Okay, that said, this was one of my favorite pieces because it was so punk to me. You know, it was so it was so like this is my vision. I don't care how hard it is to produce it. This is what I want to produce. You know, and that's sort of that's kind of the way Brian approaches things. The toy is hideous, but no, I, I love that figure. I painted dozens and dozens of those, and Visigos and Mummy Boys. Now, that said, because I wanted to kiss Brian's ass before I said this, my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite companies by far was Strange Co. 
Oh yeah. Strange Co. Oh, Remember yeah. Gary? I was babbling incoherently about how freaking awesome the graph scene was in San Francisco. And I never got around to naming off some of the artists, but you had like Sam Flores and you had Mars One, you had Bigfoot, you had this incredible roster of artists that Strange Co. had. And so like one of the first things I painted that wasn't Japanese vinyl, that wasn't like a bounty hunter piece, was uh, Tiger Baby. I destroyed, you know. No, but Jeremy Fish, too. You forgot his name. Uh, yeah, Fish. Fish had the uh, bunny van. was amazing. It was based off his silly pink bunnies. Yeah, I Strange, Strange Co. had just freaking – here's <laughs> – and and I, I like to say this part after babbling about Super 7. Strange Co. had my favorite artist and the worst production. They were making stuff in the lowest common denominator Chinese factories. So, like – you know, everything I said about the Dokuwashi was magnified tenfold when you picked up a bunny van and all four legs went in different directions, you know, <laughs> uh, or know even, you know, but I mean, ha- I mean, have you held these pieces? George, I'm, I know you've seen I'm, some. Of I'm them. very familiar with the Dokuwashi. I, I just waffled one probably several months ago, but I, I used to love that piece. I think it's, you'd say it's hideous, but I, I, I mean, the silhouette and the shape of it and the fact that I think that was a great piece. <laughs> Well, now wait a minute. Are we talking about the great big one, the one that's like ten inches tall, or yeah, uh, the one smaller? that's no, the one that's about oh. ten inches tall. Okay, so you know where the joints. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, dude. It's, I I love that piece. That is still one of my favorite oh, pieces. Okay. I, I just meant from a production standpoint. It was. Right. I said that largely for George. I was baiting George to see if he'd take the bait. And, he doesn't and know what you're on. talking about. He did. He, he, he's George. in the bathroom or somewhere. George I'm, still, I'm still here the whole time. <laughs> George <laughs> doesn't care. Hey, George. I've been listening to all like I got a freelance uh, full time job and I've been listening to all the podcasts and it's a common thing for you to disappear. So I'm not taking offense when you left before. Most of the time I disappear because what they're talking about is boring and all they keep saying <laughs> is how cute something is. And I don't want to talk about how cute something is. Um, so when I was talking or, about you, I was boring. Or no, no, no. I, but for when you when you started talking earlier, the, the guy who did some delivery for us today uh, was calling back to, and I, I didn't know what he was calling about, so I answered it. But I muted you guys, and I answered it. And he was trying to find if he left his drill at the apartment. His drill. His, his drill. While his drill was talking. One drill. His, his, his guy one drill. His drill one. No, but I, what I recognize as what Lisa for did the most, or the biggest thing that impacted the the toy scene was definitely Mummy Boys and Fatimas. He did uh, Star Wars themed Mummy Boys, and they were just, to this day, I remember him as being like a huge hit. People always wanted him. Thanks, bro. Thank you very much, man. So those are the two. And well, you remember what I got beat up for the most, right? What what pissed off the skull brainers the most? It was the KVPs because I painted a shit ton of those too. Oh yeah. Oh, that was another third one. Yes, that was. Those were some of your best work too. Thanks, bro. That that end, I think George knows this, but Gary, my great – because, God, I used to post up all kinds of shit on Skullbrain, and finally, you know, Brian and some of the other folks came to me, and they're like, look, you can't – don't post up monies and dunnies and Western vinyl shit. You're going to give these people a freaking coronary. They're so pissed. You know, you get a – we get a dozen emails a day about Lucifer and why the fuck is he allowed to, you know, post this Western vinyl <laughs> crap. They were so just murderously, 
you know. <laughs> and it's like these are these are dudes. Scott Tullison and I used to laugh about this all the time. These are like dudes that are never going to see a vagina. They're in their mom's basement and they're just furious at the whole world. But uh, God, they hated me. And so I took it. I took it as a as marching orders. You know, that's why my first opportunity to curate a show, I I invited Alex. I invited as many you know Western vinyl guys as I could find. You know, I wanted I wanted it to be accessible. I I didn't want if I sell you a piece of my vinyl, if you buy a Hanu or a Pickle Baby or anything I've ever had my hands on, the moment it, the moment it touches your hands, it's yours. You know, and if if even if it's a custom. But I just I don't think I don't I think it's weird to have this proprietary sort of mentality where I'm going to make a product, which is, by the way, that's commercial art, not fine art to start with. And then I'm going to dictate what you can do with it. I'm not going to I mean, fuck that. I'm happy that people buy my shit under any pretense or context. If they want to paint it, more power to them. I agree with you. I think if someone buys your toy, ends up deciding they want to make it a platform to use and they strip it and do whatever they want with it, that's the right to do so. They bought it, they paid for it, they can do whatever they want. I know not every artist likes when people do that, but that's the right to do so. So you can't really complain about it. But you mentioned you're curating shows. How many shows have you curated so far, Lee? Uh, I'd say probably half a dozen or so more for Dragatomi and maybe half of that for Super 7 and then four or five other venues wow um i gotta do some stuff for uh, i should probably give a shout out to uh, uh suburban vinyl the robs mm-hmm. rob Latino and in new york rob lasoto yeah those those dudes treated me very very well although i've never curated a show there the clutter guys treated me you know the clutter folks speaking of clutter and new york are you guys planning to go out to five points this year i don't think either one of you have attended before i i haven't i was gonna ask you guys because you and george have both been right gary no, I uh, yeah. I have. Yeah, I uh, I'm from New York, so it's when I want to go away, I don't want to go back to New York. <laughs> so it makes it hard. Uh, that's why I loved going to San Diego. I loved going to Pasadena, and now Anaheim. If I can pull it off, I might be there. I might. I'm gonna have work at a No Love City booth, and so I'm cu- doing some customs for them right now. Okay. Well, if you guys can make it, I would love to see you guys there. It's a fantastic weekend. It's I highly suggest it. Gary, did you did you have a booth or did you have stuff at somebody else's booth or did you The first year I did, I shacked up with Ryan Rutherford and I love him. He's such a great guy, great booth mate. And then the next year I just uh, went out as an attendee and Lee, I just learned that I'm just kind of burnt out on exhibiting. I don't like to be locked down to a booth for several days. I like to roll out of bed, go to breakfast, roll into the exhibit hall, talk to people, mingle, walk around, go to lunch when I want. It's just so much more carefree as an attendee versus exhibiting. The last time I went to Comic-Con, I, I was hanging out with some of the Broke Piggy folks. I'd made some backpack sales, and I had made some prior sales that I was going to deliver. But, dude, being able to walk around and not be holden to any particular booth or company, it's amazing. There's no stress. I mean, I just went wherever the hell I wanted to. It was great. It's awesome, and that's why I love doing it. Going out as an attendee is so much more carefree. I enjoy the show so much more. You know, if someone was willing and they wanted to have me come out and do a release with them or a signing, that that would be awesome. I, I can do that for a couple hours, but I just don't enjoy being committed to a booth. And, you know, to the people who can do it, um, 
this is something that Chris Lee pointed out when he was on. Like, there's more to the event than just sales. You have to look at it as a marketing and putting your brand out there and getting out there. Because when you have a present at the, these shows, people find you if you stay stationary. I can't tell you how many business cards have been handed to me at a San Diego Comic-Con from large companies looking for work for hire or future work and future designers. So there's a huge benefit to being at these events other than just having weekend sales. And I think a lot of people forget about that. And it's, I write it off, so it doesn't matter. But Yeah, I do too. And But yeah, I re- listened to the last episode and yeah, Chris Lee found some awesome opportunities there and and i heard you talking about that and it's this decon i actually met people that i haven't bought from me in a while and they came back because they saw my stuff and it's a lot of people don't see especially now instagram hides you know i only get 10 percent of my viewers mm-hmm. and i have 13 no thirteen thousand followers and i'll and only a thousand see them there's a lot of people that see it for the first time at DCon. Yes, and that's usually beneficial. It's also, in addition to that, someone might be seeing your stuff for the first time in person and in hand and be able to look at and see the quality and the level of the work that you're bringing to the table. That's something that sometimes you don't always get when you're just looking through Instagram feeds. And so they maybe they don't make that purchase that weekend, but maybe they put it in the memory bank to contact you later down the line for a commission, or maybe someone decides to invite you to a you know a custom show later down the road. Agreed. <laughs> Do you think there's a way for people who are new to the scene or new coming into it to get in the same way you guys did where you can start by like customizing things and showing it off? Like, is that, is that still a viable way to get involved in things? Well, that's what I did at Comic-Con. I would go up to Lev and I got into the Simpsons show back in the day and, and I sold pieces to David Horvath and now we're friends. And but- Yeah, but I don't think it's still – to his question, Alex, I don't think it's still relevant today. I mean, like you had talked about earlier, you know, we build upon our popularity on the Kid Robot boards and some of the other message boards. I, I don't know, George. I don't. I don't think. No, I but I, I think opposite because I think that if you promote yourself, okay. So he, this is what I've tried to push on Lee the all the years I've known him. You gotta spend time marketing. If you don't market yourself, social media, uh, just doing promotions, doing everything, you're gonna fall in the cracks and when i marketed a lot and i would even last year i'd meet people everyone knows who i am and even back in the day when i started it was amazing when these big artists knew who i was and they had a smile on their face and it was like you need to take marketing classes that is probably the number one thing that will get you noticed did we answer the question george I think what George was trying to get at is, is there another channel? Do we still have that channel available for someone to break into the scene only through customs? And I think it's changed. I think back when you guys started, there was, it seems like there was a custom show every weekend. You guys, that's why you guys have done so many shows and have so many customs under your belt. But today I feel like there's really only Martian toys having custom events and large custom presents at the conventions. And then, and the clutter gallery, other than that, is there, is that it? Is there anyone else doing heavily custom-based stuff? No. No, I can't. Yeah, neither no. can I. I think, like, like whatever, whatever Scott put together at Decon, that that broke piggy booth, I guess, they do that kind of thing, don't they? Yeah, they sure. Well, I think that event, George, was more of a curated event with... <laughs> 
pretty established names within our toy scene. I think what you got, you're, what you're talking about is someone who's fresh-faced, needs a little lift, and I think that's where the difference is. I think Martian Toys is really amazing at just really helping the person just starting out, has no yeah. experience. Yeah. Martian Toys is almost like Dragatomi where they would give people chances. Yeah, yeah you know, we, we, really should, we really should give Aaron some props for that because he, he does go out of his way to support up-and-coming artists or people that may not have gotten an opportunity to show, you know, at a more traditional venue. So I'm super excited to see them continue to do that. I just, uh, I mean, God, I, I just, I don't know if your, if your ROI on that kind of stuff is, is going to be worth the time. You know, clearly it's a labor of, of love for, you know, Aaron and his crew, Dominic, all those guys, because it, it's hard. It's, I, if I had to do everything over again, I mean, it was it was sort of like lightning in a bottle for Alex and I. I was selling. This is kind of weird, but I, as an art director, I had a great salary, I had a great job. I was working for an established company. I, I didn't have any monetary concerns, and so I could charge pretty much whatever I wanted. And you know, you're selling custom dunnies and monies for four or five hundred dollars a pop. I wasn't worried about my day job. You know, my side job was great. Not knowing that, you know, there was a looming financial crash and that, you know, my target demographic was apparently, you know, young male tech workers from San Francisco. And those guys went from burning cash to moving out of San Francisco. (laughs) Reality hit really, really hard. And, you know, being able to sell large canvases and stuff. And then I think I think that was kind of the earth shaker for me because Alex and I continue to polish and refine what we were doing. But then I realized I want it. I want the ability to take a chance. I want to, I want to make a $10,000 canvas again. I want to make a $5,000 canvas. I want to go back to some of the large pieces I was, uh, you know, I was able to sell then that got kind of got me into toys, toys, toys got to be uh, a way to make a affordable product for anybody, you know, it was, it was something that you could sell that, uh, you know, the price point was friendly. The, the platforms were friendly. The, you know, the, I, I hate to say lowest common denominator, but you know, it was accessible. I think that's a better way to say it. It was very, very accessible to folks. And I think that's why the toy thing was so great. Even people that didn't know the artist or didn't know the platforms or didn't know the companies could still look at it and find some kind of value or some connective point. I never wanted to walk over to somebody that might buy something and they would go, Oh, is that a fish? And I had sculpted a dog. I'm like, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's a beautiful fish. That's, you know, because it's, it's open to personal interpretation. You, you know, you let the client decide or the customer decide the customer is always right. <laughs> you let them decide what it is and what it means to them. I don't want to dictate what, you know, impact it has or what association it has. So, I don't know. I got off on a tangent there. Sorry. Do you see yourself, your guys, do you see yourselves doing more micro run stuff? I know with the Hono during designer con, you had the beautiful, beautiful resin pieces that task one casted for you. Do you see yourself doing more of that type of stuff? Just for a moment. Did he not kick ass on those? They're those incredible. were freaking phenomenal. Yeah, he's, so, he's a, he's a wizard with the casting. He is such a wizard. Talk about a dude that paid his dues too. But uh, Task totally, totally carried me last decon. All of that beautiful 
marbling mm-hmm. and transparencies and the glitter flake and you know all of that stuff was Dan's skill set, uh, which I'm gonna you know completely rip off and produce myself now. <laughs> yeah, no, his casting is phenomenal. I love that each one was different. Just incredible work that he does. So good. But he's come yeah. a long way because now he's doing movie props. So he learned all these skills that because I I met him a long time ago when he worked at Strange Co. It sounds like everyone worked somewhere. Is, is, am I getting that correct? Like, dude, you are. That's. I think I didn't really speak to that, but it was. God, it was. I. I didn't understand what a wonderful sort of community we had here in San Francisco. I just assumed every major city had its toy scene. Every major city would have its. You know. Yeah, Lee. Just throughout this episode, we've heard that you work for Super Seven. Josh Herbersheimer worked at Super Seven, working the cash registers. Uh, Task Wonders worked at Strange Co. Drills was doing photography for Kid Robot uh, at shows and stuff. And then we all know that Hug Gee worked as the manager at Kid Robot. So I'm starting to see the pattern with the San Francisco toy scene. I think we were all attracted to art. If you if you removed the toy scene from it, we'd still, you know, like guys like Task and Alex still would have had the graffiti edge. You know, that would have been their direction towards urban contemporary art. You know what I'm saying with that? Yeah. Well, all of us, all of us were artistically inclined, but that was sort of the nature of our community that allowed us those opportunities. I had no intention to find toys. It was kind of a fluke. It was, you know, getting to see Frank Kozik's collection and apartment and getting to talk to the man and, and seeing his renewed passion for stuff and getting to meet Brian Flynn, getting to meet the guys from Strange Co. You know, it was just amazing to have so much of that going on in San Francisco at that time. And, yeah, exactly. This kind of flows in it with it. Uh, but yeah, when I was doing the photos at Kid Robot and I went to Comic-Con, I would try to tag along with Baroness and Huck G and uh, Sket and Hernandez and try to hang out with them. And I was like, the. it felt like almost like I was the third wheel and I was always just kind of like following them. But then when the Toy Fam started, it became this huge center and everyone from every group started joining and it was really the glory days of the toy scene holy crap what was that what's happening not me what happened lucifer's building that studio right now i think that's what's going on (laughs) i think lucifer had too much whiskey and fell over what happened i know it sounds like someone's like unpack is it is it just maybe George unpacking? No, it's not here at all. Well, it's gone. It's gone. Whatever it was. Hey, so uh, was... I got question. I got questions for all three of you guys because I'm dying to know. Since we're talking about toys, what was the last toy you guys bought? Or doesn't necessarily have to be a purchase. What was the last thing you got that impressed you or stuck in your mind? I'll start. Uh, mine is the Boss 2.0 Charge from Unbox at Decon. It is my favorite piece right now. Unbox is just killing it. Dan is just doing Dan is the bomb. Dan is the bomb, man. Uh, my piece was the, really, probably the, yeah, the Maximilian Cash by Pete Fowler, produced by uh, Super Plastic. Oh, I haven't got to hold oh, one of those yet. Yeah, what, it's freaking what, awesome. What do you think of the quality? Is that is that... Pretty badass. Yeah, it, Lee, it's phenomenal. It's about as good as it gets. Great weight to the piece. Amazing crisp paint job. It's yeah, it's really, it's really, really nice. I you want know? one of those. And 
to me, it reminds me of old Strange Code. Strange Code. Dude, that's exactly where I was going to go with that. Except that, like Gary said, the quality is phenomenal. I know, but <laughs> looking from a distance, you know, I haven't held it. So Strange Code was the same way. You saw pictures and it was like, wow. George? Yeah. Uh, the most recent toy to come into the house it was a Kickstarter I backed a while ago called Nudies. Oh, you got those. Those are they, great. They, they arrived. Yeah, they arrived this week. Oh, the little genitalia thing? Yeah, the little doll no gen. No way. Nagavi and Nipes. They're bigger than I thought they were going to be, and they're awesome. <laughs> what does Jess think of them? I don't know. She, uh, I haven't opened the boxes yet in front of her, so oh, she hasn't seen them. <laughs> <laughs> we can get a live action. We can get a live action response if you want. Yeah, let's get a live yes. action response. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Come on in here. We got toys for you to review real quick. This is our new game. What a Line box time. <laughs> All right, let's see. So, which do you want to open, the Gavi or Knives? Which one's first? But I've seen these. So you haven't seen them in person. You can tell me the what you nudies? Think. Yeah. I've seen these. Open it up. Tell us your opinion. I thought this would be done for me. <laughs> oh, you want someone else to open it for you? Yeah. <laughs> The boxing is cute. Yeah, the boxes are really nice. I haven't seen the boxes. It's uh, They just look like taped cardboard boxes. They almost look like an Amazon box. Oh, okay. Yeah. But they're really graphically like made. They have black line around the outside. Real graphic. Nice. Hmm. They're really tough tough to open. Yeah. Oh, there we go. All right, so here is... Does anybody care that they're tough to open? No. Here's Knights. Did I get the vagina one? Yeah, Nagabi. <laughs> so it's an uncircumcised penis. That's your soundbite, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> and then a little vagina. A little blushy vagina. It has a little blush on it. Sweet. Um, what do you think? Is it a hard vinyl, George, or a soft? <laughs> oh, no, they're, they're, hard. they're real hard. Okay. <laughs> It's a real hard, uncircumcised penis. Listen, you only want to open these up so you can make these puns. Look, they have little back dimples. Yeah, they have back dimples. Um, I have no feelings about them. Where can he display them in the new house? Oh, good question. Bathroom, bathroom. Good question. Oh, they'd be good in the bathroom. They might be good in the bathroom. <laughs> Actually, let's put them in the bathroom. We have a shelf in there. There you go. <laughs> hey, hey, guys, what what's the skin tone? Are they flesh like Caucasian flesh tone? Yeah, Caucasian yeah. flesh. They said they will be making other. Because uh, I want, I want all ethnicities. I want you know, browns and blacks and pale whites and different shades of yellow and ochre and. I, I think that's the plan. They needed to see how these were going to do first. I feel like the vagina doesn't really look like a vagina one. They, they, do you remember um, Do you remember Sours? Yes. The Brendan Monroe Sours? Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, I love those figures. So they're kind of, they kind of feel like that, but obviously not. They don't look like a sour, but they have that similar like size and shape. The penis reminds me of like an elephant type nose. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you'd look, they look at them like and abstracty. Yeah, you wouldn't look at them and know what they are right off the bat. I don't think. I mean, I think that's what's great about them, and then the story behind them is really nice too. 
I wish they had like a little butt. They though. don't have butts, which is weird. But oh, speaking boo. of butts, okay. So speaking oh, of butts, they have the back dimples, but not the butt. All toys should have butts. So yeah. yeah. Lucifer was one of the first people to start putting butts on toys. I did. Well, I used to. I used to actually Dremel butts into my Dunny designs and stuff. You know, I used That's to awesome. sculpt sculpt a butt if it didn't have a butt. Oh. Okay. I put a I put a butt on the stroll. There was never a back drawing, so I just made it. <laughs> you guys, so you guys have been in the toy scene for a long period of time. You you've rolled with the Dragatoni toy fam and all that sort. Of, do you have a favorite memory from the past fifteen years, fourteen, fifteen years? I have a lot. It's. But, like, here's one thing that I haven't mentioned. Like, I remember going to Kid Robot uh New York City back in, I don't know, uh, Series 2 came out, uh, the Dunnies, and there was Cause Toys for under 100 bucks sitting on the shelf. Yeah, if you can go back in time, right? But, uh, so, 2011, when my Dunny got released, I was in New York visiting family, and my Dunny came out. But, apparently, New York Kid Robot was having a Paul Bunnant's book signing, so they couldn't announce any artists coming there. But they were like, you're welcome to stay here. And uh, David Chappelle was there, and his son started crying. Oh, I love this story. And I wanted a photo with David Chappelle. Uh, and so I went up to him, and his bodyguards came up to me and stopped me. And I said, well, I have something for you. I brought extra customs of my dunny in my pocket. And I said, I have something for your son. Gave it to him. His son got a big smile on his face. I got my photo, and it was kind of awesome. Oh, that's a nice story. But, yeah, one thing I do miss is the lines. That line for 2011 uh, Dunny series went around the block in New York City. Also, all the series that I photographed in 2006 had a line down the block on Hate Street. Yeah, I've never actually been to any of those events, but I go to the toy blogs and see the lines of people, you know, waiting in line to get to these Dunny release parties or trading events. And you're probably the ones of, of the photos I was probably looking at. But yeah, they, they look crazy, and we just we just don't have that going on anymore. And and the cases would sell out by middle of the night. Wow. So it was like if you were on a certain mount on the line, you would not get a case. Do you think we can get back to that, or is that just a thing of the past? There's so many different toys now. It was like even uh, we, me and Lisa for talk about how Dragatomi, we do blind box series. I would do custom series in a box, and I would sell them out in three minutes. Three minutes. That that was the threshold, yeah. If you could sell out, what, 20, 30, 40 oh, pieces? 60 pieces. Yeah. Wow. Do you guys think that the Dunny still carries the weights, the clout that it once had? Or the cachet. Or the cachet that it once did back when you guys were, were doing this stuff? You know what? I think it's come back a little bit because I'm looking at what Kid Robot's doing right now. And they're doing these custom runs. And they're so – like they're priced extremely high and they sell out. And it's – I think it's still there. But it's not there how it used to be because it used to be like if you're not there – if you're not sitting at a computer pressing F5, I think that was a refresh, to try to get a dunny, you weren't going to get it because it would sell out instantly online. Right. I think it's still one of the only platforms that sells as far as, like, when people do customs on it. Like, you know, you can you can do a custom on, you know, anything you want, obviously, but I think as far as people that are going to buy it, I think most people will only buy custom dunnies. 
Yeah, I agree. I think Dunny is the premier platform for sure. I think there's so many collectors out there for Dunny still that it's still going strong. I mean, there's Squink is one that I can think of, a custom miner that primarily makes his living off of doing probably, what, 90% Dunny customs? But he doesn't – I don't think he makes a living because he does once, one a month maybe. Yeah, but he has that Patreon account and the, you know, the Custom Commission Club where the list is always closed. It's just he is doing tons and tons of customs, but we only see the ones that he makes available outside of the privately sold stuff. Yeah. I don't yeah. think Drills, you never told us what your favorite platform to work on was. I would say uh, I have a few. The Dunny is definitely one. It's kind of like you like your childhood toy. This was my – basically starting toy that i first customized so i have attraction to that i love japanese vinyl i have a lot of japanese collectors so i'm doing a lot of pieces for them uh, one of my favorite pieces that i just got was the groman uh kong or whatever it's called oh wow you got one of those king corpse so, king corpse so Jesus. someone sent me one uh from japan to customize for him oh wow and it's amazing. I don't want to send it back. I love it. <laughs> Grumman's Grumman stuff's phenomenal. Oh, yeah, it is. Incredible. And, I, and since I'm shouting out everyone, but I also would like to, you know, Tag gave me a big opportunity back in the oh, day. Oh, yeah, Gino. Toy Art Gallery, for those who don't know the acronym. Yep, yep. And uh, I'm just trying to think. There was a lot of companies. It was, it was a whole different world back then. Is there a, a, a platform that you guys have not wanted? Maybe not a platform because people will send you guys a King Corpse. There's a lot of toys that aren't really true platforms. Is there a toy that someone sent you that you almost – that you turned down because you didn't want to touch the piece? There's a lot of toys that <laughs> I wanted to turn down. And being a, Basically, I, I left my job as a designer uh, so I could do freelance design and – custom toys or be an artist and i always wanted to be an artist not a customizer so exactly I consider myself too. an artist more me too but it was a lot of toys that people sent me and it's like i had to pay the bills and i was like i don't want to do this and after i did it <laughs> i loved it oh yeah i know that's how it usually happens right you usually complain and bitch up front you just don't want to do the work and you, you procrastinate and then once it's done you're like oh i actually like this i kind of don't want to sell it well there's been a few times where one of us would get something really, really cool, and then uh, we'd either make a trade for a common one or – because we, we are at the heart of this collectors. The Toy Fam was uh, coming from a point of wanting to participate. Uh, I've done a little bit of mural work and graffiti work, nothing, nothing like what Alex has done. But when my wife and I were wandering around San Francisco, I wanted to be part of that community. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I had gotten to show in some pretty good galleries, but I wasn't I wasn't above paying my dues and you know showing in anywhere that would hang art. But the toy the toy scene was something new, so you got to start on the ground floor, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, how often are you going to get to be part of a new art movement, right. a new urban contemporary art movement? Does that make sense? No, that absolutely does. I was gonna. Yeah. Uh, shows is where i sell the most and it's yeah i get i actually sell to people that normally don't see my stuff which is cool but uh it's hard it's it's hard to sit there and try to figure out your own toys i wish i could make more sculpts and more designs and and i had some of the stuff i've done before i had chris raniak and uh, amanda louise spade uh help me on designs and walter chowskowskis chowskowskis yeah he actually sculpted a piece 
that I'm trying to get produced. So hopefully this year it gets produced, and I've been holding on to it for a long time. It's just because I didn't want to give it to the wrong company. I was uh, hoping you were going to talk about this. I didn't want to. I, I don't. I, I'm not going to say who because I'll say well, it off can record. You, can you talk about the piece? Because you've made small versions of this too. Yeah, it's, I call it the drone, and it's basically a gas mask on kind of. I loved doing figures like uh, when I did a Fatima once. I added a skirt, long skirt, and I loved that draping. So I made a draping metal skirt, and it kind of has a sluggish like, but. Uh, I made mini ones, I made uh, regular size, and then Chauskowskis made me uh, a giant one. When you say giant, how big are we talking? Uh, 12 inches, okay. maybe more. Yeah, that's, that's I was going to say sizable. At, least, at least 12 inches, dude. That thing's and, huge. And at D-Con, I handed it off to somebody. So I'll tell you off record, but it's not guaranteed, but it's in right hands. Nice. You know what? It's been a while since I've been more excited for somebody else than I am for my own pieces. I'm I'm honestly invested in this. I'm really I really hope this works out well for Alex. I think it's going to be phenomenal. And this, uh, yeah, the sketches of this when this toy basically came with Chris Reiniak, Brant Peters helped me a little, and Amanda Louise Swoop Spade. So it's come a long way, and I've probably had it since maybe five years. Wow, has it been that long, dude? Maybe longer. Wow. Well, let's hope it you happens. You know what? You know what? Gary, he shot himself in the foot because it's it's like $100 in resin to produce one of these. Yeah. It's so huge. And the problem is I ran out of resin, so I filled it with rocks from my backyard. <laughs> so <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't going to tell him that, but since you blabbed it. <laughs> hey, you get an A for creativity, Trills. But I'm curious, Jules, with the, something like your style, the decay and the distress, I imagine that's something a factory doesn't do with pad printing. That's a very hand-painted technique on your end. You need to find the talented painters out there at the factories. So is it hard to find a factory to do the quality of work that you do in, in paints. I know 3A and stuff can do it, but is it hard? I've been told by two different companies. I was supposed to do it with another company, and then it was so hard to cast, so it took longer, and I wasn't happy with the cast, and then I had to redo the mold, and uh, so that fell off. But both companies that I've talked to said that they have the best painters in the scene, and they could handle it. Nice, okay. It's at the per- it's it's at the perfect place, man. It really is. I'm I'm super excited to see what happens with this. Are you guys big collectors? Do you how, I mean how much do you think you collect per year? Oh god. Once upon a time when I had my art director job, I was hemorrhaging money okay. to buy toys. <laughs> okay, Lee, don't lie. Okay, so I've been to Lee's house. He has <laughs> he probably when the scene was huge and everything was worth a lot, he probably had Fifty thousand worth of toys. Wow! Now he, now he has now he has probably five hundred dollars worth of toys. But <laughs> but he has a lot. Is I that mean, because everything decreased in value, or is because did you purge your collection? I had uh, well, we had fifteen D or seventeen Dtals. We had a we had a large house in the Oakland Hills, uh, but I mean, most of the money was honestly tied up in the art collection, the two D art collection. The paintings and drawings and prints and stuff. You had seventeen Detolfs. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Okay. So he had a room also, which was supposed to be the treadmill room, and it was top to bottom. You couldn't walk <laughs> in there with boxes of toys. Yeah. 
Damn, yeah, Lee. I, I had my own private brick and mortar. But uh, my last, so I bought the um, clear blue Stingy Jack and uh, an unpainted clear Stingy Jack. And I think I have all, I think I have all the Stingy Jacks, both painted and unpainted, including, uh, I traded for a prototype. So I think Brant said there was only two or three of the light blue ones. Alex and I both collect uh, Vampire Roses. Yes. And we... And I can't, I mean, our friendship has survived this, but there's been times where, you know, Josh, the guy that created the Vampire Rose, doesn't get a blank. And Alex and I both have pieces that I don't think Josh has. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm hoping Lisa for, dies from a heart attack so I could steal his. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cut him out of your will, Lee. Yeah, I mean, it's plausible. I think. I think I, I promised Josh I would send most of this stuff back his way, but there you go. He, he and Alex could divvy it up. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I have a question. Out of all, since you talk about all the things that you have painted and how many different platforms you've painted on and different toys you've painted on, is there anything out there that you haven't yet touched that you wish you could get one to paint on? Well, Alex just scored uh, one of Groman's Kongs. I think that'd be a fun piece to paint. For me, it's the stuff with like lots of gnarly detail. George, yeah, yeah that not, oh, dude, let me uh, let me tell you one of my favorite pieces to paint. I gotta do runs of these. It was your sculpt, buddy. It was Scott's deadbeat. George, I, I love that figure. I absolutely love that figure. Oh, I appreciate it. I have probably three of your customs, at least. You guys working together on that piece made it one of my favorite. I, and in fact, if I'm looking at my case right now. There's a shit ton of Strange Coast stuff across the top. The very top of the case has uh, Dokuwashis, and then there's Vampire Roses, Mummy Boys, the Hanu, below that Stigy Jacks, my own Pickle Baby, and then I think I've got every one of Scott's Deadbeats, George. And the sculpt on that is just, it's incredible. It's, it's still one of my favorite sculpts. I think I had, I think at that point in time, I had just sort of, given up seeing something that reminded me of strange co or you know made me really excited about collecting toys again that was the first piece i had seen in quite a while that really just i was really jazzed for you guys knocked that one out of the park but yeah, yeah when you were talking about what we collect i have i'm missing three unpainted rose vampires and i have every single one otherwise wow. uh i think i have every single hanu unpainted and painted I have a whole shelf, D12 shelf, crammed with grease bats. That was mm. one of my... Oh, I forgot the grease bats. Jeff yeah, Hyam, Monster Warship. Yeah. So I, I was at uh, Comic-Con, and I was with J-Ru, uh, Jesse, and you know, Monster Warship was selling him the black ones. And I was like, he's like 65 bucks. And I was like, uh, I was, you know, I was a broke artist. Being at, <laughs> I wanted to buy everything. So I, I hesitated, and then I regretted it. And then someone on Skullbrain contacted me and sold it for a little markup, but it was still worth it. And it's one of my favorite pieces of my collection. Nice. I have Leroy C's uh, from Invisible Creature. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, that's a great piece. And I did a custom run with them. He oh. did a print, and I did uh, boxes and uh, custom Leroy that went with it with dog tags. Awesome. And then Gargamel Micros are my other addiction. I have maybe 300 plus. Are you serious? 
Yeah. He's yeah, got, okay. You guys are big collectors. He's got crazy like one-offs and weird colorways that weren't released to the public. He's got hand paints. Yeah. So I've you, sold a lot of stuff. If, if it doesn't display in my office, I sell it. Okay, explain to me. It sounds like you guys are kind of completists. Explain to me that mentality because usually I just buy the one colorway I like and I don't have a bunch of them. I do that with most except for – Rose Vampires, Hanus, and the Micros, and the Leroy's, and everything else is one of. I have Chris Raniak stuff, I have 64 Colors stuff, uh, and I was actually the first person, the IWG show uh, at Rocket World was 64 Colors' first show ever. Wow. I didn't know that. Yes. That's cool. That's they really thanked cool. me and sent me a dunny, and I have that in display. And Guys, we've been recording for an hour and 45 minutes. I told you this could go on for four episodes. <laughs> well, you we can have... boot us. You can boot us, dude. But you got to You, I, I got to know what what kind of things have you collected? I've seen George's collection. George collects anything that isn't nailed down. What? <laughs> and, and George what you... was on not too long ago, and he talks about his collection. So we don't. Yeah. 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 Leave for me. I mean, if you walk in my office, you would kind of see the aesthetic right away. It's a lot of. Clean form, crisp paint app for the most part. Uh, just not a whole lot of detail in my collection. There's mostly the stuff that's just things that I think that has nice, interesting shapes, makes for uh, nice silhouettes, just good proportions. I mean, to give you an idea of some of the stuff I collect that you'll be familiar with would be a lot of the Brian Flint stuff, the Kanji Kaiju series, uh, Josh Herbersheimer stuff, like Mummy Boys, um, David Horvath, Tato, Pete Fowler, Chris Reiniak. Chima Group, some of the stuff I'm liking recently is Paradise Island, not, not Paradise, Pointless Island, um, just looking around the office, Sad Salesman, Horrible Adorables, Tato, Neth Creatures, you know, that kind of stuff, stuff that's just clean and form. I don't have a whole lot of detail in my collection. I have one Rocket Rex from a BC Blaster series that James Groman gave, gave me that I love, uh, and a Grease Bat. Those are probably about as detailed as I go. Yeah, I don't go either. I love the things that just, you know, it's... The Rose Vampire is very simple. It has a cute, but it's also evil in a way. It's I, I like it all. And uh, so I have a question. for This is for everyone. Have you ever had someone come to your office room and just be like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> uh, let me tell you my story, and then you can tell yours. Uh, I came back from uh, Oregon, and my garage was open. So I thought someone broke in. Uh, but the power ended up going out, and it opened up a little, and it looked like someone pried it up and climbed under. Police officers came into my office, and they saw all this graffiti stuff. And <laughs> I'm in a very conservative area, but uh, they saw all these vinyl toys, and they're like, I heard the officer talking to their friend. He's like, what are the, all those toys? And he goes, they're designer collectible toys. Oh, he knew. People highly collect. And I was, like, surprised, but I didn't want to talk to him. So it was uncomfortable, but it was funny hearing a cop in a very conservative neighborhood. That's say great. That. that reminds me of the, like skate videos you'll see, where a police officer rolls up to a group of skater kids in a parking lot, and next thing you know, he's like just hanging with them, doing kickflips on their boards uh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. My my office, my no one's no one cares either way. It's just mainly to be fair, the only people that come into your office are your kids and your wife. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, it's one well, and the bug guy, but he never seems to care either. <laughs> so yeah, I, no, no one's really ever seen my collection. 
So, Gary, it's not it's not in the rest of the house. It's just localized just to the office. Well, right now I have a, a detached office from the house, and so no one goes in here except for me primarily. And any friends or family that comes over, they don't go in my office ever. Okay, I, I close my door, and it's like I it's I it's kind of the same way for me. But Lucifer's house, all his artwork and things he collects is all through the house. <laughs> his living room looks like a museum. That used, to, that, that used to be my old house. And yeah, oh, when I was dating, that was always interesting to bring home a girl for the first time. And she's like, oh, you're the 40-year-old virgin guy. I'm like, well, I guess. Yes. Yes. Guys, sorry. We really got to end this. I probably have 20 minutes to cut out before I can get this ready for the, the hour and a half episode. So we really need to end it now. Thank you so much, guys, for joining. This has been fun. I know there's so much more stuff we need to cover. We can have you come back another time. But for now, why don't you guys take a brief moment and just let our listeners know where they can find each of you. Uh, Drill one with one L on Instagram, uh, on Twitter. And then uh, my Flickr link will be on. It's drill one too. And then, yeah, drill1.com with one L. And you can find basically by Googling me too. So. Okay, Lucifer. Uh, I still own the URL uh, lucifer.com. That'll take you directly to my uh, web store. And then uh, I'm Lucifer1 on most social media, like Instagram and things like that. All right, George. At Double G Toys on Instagram. And I'm Gary Ham, Gary Ham on Instagram, superham.com. Thanks again, Lucifer and Drill1 for joining us. Um, this has been the Marsham Toy Hour. We do this. We try to do it every week, not because we have to. Because we want to. to. That's right. Because we want to. (laughs) So until our next transmission, we're signing off. Bye. Peace out. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Cut. Okay. Okay.